let me invite you to turn in the Bible to the book of Exodus. So Exodus is the second book of the Bible. So if you open the Bible at the beginning, you'll see Genesis, which means beginning. And then if you go a little further, you'll get to Exodus. And we've been going through this book together as a church. What we usually do is take a book of the Bible and just sort of walk through it, chapter by chapter or section by section, and just try to learn what this book is about and what it has to say to us today. And so that's what we've been doing with the book of Exodus. Now the big picture of Exodus, the title of our sermon series is called From Bondage to Belonging, because that's really the journey that God leads the people of Israel on in this book. They start out uh, in as slaves in the land of Egypt. They're oppressed and uh, uh, exploited and mistreated, and God intervenes to rescue them and liberate them. But then he doesn't just sort of take them out into the middle of nowhere and say, figure it out on your own. He says, no, I want you to belong to me and know that I love you and uh, that I'm yours and you are mine and uh, I promise to be with you uh, for the rest of your life. He sort of leads them on a journey to his presence. So that's a big picture of the book of Exodus. And uh, we are at chapter 15. Uh, the chapters in the Bible are the big numbers and the verses are the small numbers. So uh, we'll be reading chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 21. Uh, so let me, um, let me read these words to you. Uh, and this comes right after the people of Israel have crossed the Red Sea. Uh, so you might have heard of that story before. If you haven't, I'll explain it a little bit later. Uh, but this is right after they have sort of crossed the Red Sea. Uh, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord... For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord. Glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury and consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'll pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desires shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh, when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the, into the sea, 
the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The one fascinating thing about human beings is that we like songs. Now, singing isn't necessary for our physical survival, and there are plenty of other things that we can do to entertain ourselves, right? Sports, games, eating, talking, drawing, painting, hiking, all kinds of things. But music and singing is found in pretty much every human culture that we have ever uh, observed or learned about. Urban, rural, suburban, ancient, modern, western, eastern, people are attracted to songs. Now, of course, not everybody feels comfortable singing out loud in front of other people, but there are some times in life when a song just hits the spot, and nothing else can quite substitute for it. Sometimes songs help us to celebrate together. Imagine going to a wedding, but there's no music, there's no dancing, there's no songs of any kind. Now, I've been to a lot of weddings, but I've never been to a wedding that has no music, right? Because songs help us to celebrate together. Songs can also help us to grieve. Uh, there are a lot of songs that sort of uh, wrestle with the darker emotions of life. Anger, sadness, disappointment, longing. Sometimes a song can express what we're feeling more than just words by themselves. And I wonder if you've ever been maybe driving in the car or at home and you have the radio on or maybe you have a playlist on your device and suddenly a song comes on and it just resonates with you so deeply. You're like, that's my song. I love that song. Right? Songs play an important role in our human experience and songs also play an important role in the Bible. Uh, there's a whole book in the Bible called Psalms that is just songs. Uh, and this morning, we are looking at what is probably the oldest song in the whole Bible. It's the first song in the book of Exodus. And if you look back in the book before Exodus, in Genesis, there are a few poetic speeches uh, here and there, but none of them are really songs. And so far, the book of Exodus has mostly been a story that's been inter- interrupted occasionally by a genealogy or by some instructions about how to commemorate a particularly pivotal event. But here, in this chapter, the story is interrupted for the first time by a song. And so we should stop for a moment and notice that and step back and think, what are we supposed to make of this song? What's this song all about? What do we take away from it? So today I want to look at three themes that run through this song. Number one, who the Lord is. That's the song that spoke to the Lord. About who the Lord is. Second, it's about what the Lord has done in the past. And third, it's about what the Lord will do in the future. So I want to look at those three themes as we uh, sort of think about this song. Uh, So first theme is, this song is about who God is. Uh, One of the major themes in the book of Exodus is how God reveals himself to the people of Israel and ultimately to the wider world. So back in chapter 5 of Exodus, Moses went to Pharaoh and Moses says, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, let my people go. And Pharaoh's first response was, Who is the Lord? Uh, and by the way, if you have a young child and you're making a little noise, you are 
are. Don't feel bad about it. Uh, you're not the only one. It makes all the rest of us feel better. So, um, and uh, so, so feel, be, you're, you may you can go out in the other room, or you can still hear a little bit, uh, or you can stay here, or you can be in the entryway, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, so Pharaoh's first question to Moses and Aaron was, who is the Lord? I don't know that guy. Uh, and back when we looked at that chapter, uh, uh, we, we noted, uh, so you can see in verse 1, you see the Lord is, is uh, in small capitals. So when that is in the Bible, it's uh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, uh, which is not a title for God. So the translation of the Lord is a little, uh, uh, it's is actually the name, the personal name of God. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he said, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. It's related to the Hebrew verb that means to be. So it's basically saying, I'm the God who was and is and always will be. Um, so in some ways, the rest of the book of Exodus is an answer to Pharaoh's question. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I don't know him. And the rest of the book of Exodus is going to answer that question about who the Lord is. Uh, and so this song talks about who the Lord is. Uh, verses 2 and 3. Uh, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Verse 3. The Lord is a, a warrior, a man of war. The Lord is his name. Um, and God had also said earlier to the people of Israel, you'll know that I am the Lord your God. So again, this theme of God revealing who he is to the people runs through this whole book. And in this chapter, we see that God has made good on that promise. This is the first time that the people of Israel actually talk to God and address him by his name. So they say, uh, they speak to God directly. So earlier in the book, it's just been Moses who's talked to God on their behalf, their leader. Um, but here, all the people sing this song to the Lord. And notice how it begins. They say, I will sing to the Lord. Uh, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. So these aren't people who are just sort of talking about God as an abstract idea or somebody who's way far away. Uh, God has become their treasure, their strength, and their song, and their salvation. And notice that it wasn't just Moses singing this song. It was also Moses and the people of Israel. Later on, Miriam, who was Moses and Aaron's sister, uh, and, and all the women. Uh, so it's men and women joining in together. All the people, not just the leaders. And they're declaring who God had shown himself to be. The Lord is a warrior. In other words, God has thought on his people's behalf. God is the defender of his people. In other words, God is not a wimp. God is not a timid and passive God, but he's a God who stands up for his people and defends all those who trust in him. And then verse 11 uh, again brings up the theme of who is the Lord? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. The idea is that there's nobody else who's quite like this God. Um, and that was sort of a new idea for people living in the ancient world, because almost everybody in the ancient world worshipped a whole bunch of different gods. So there were gods who influenced the weather, there were gods who promoted fertility, there were gods who gave success in war, and you would sort of always add one more god to the list. Oh, maybe there's a god who will make us have a good harvest this year, right? Uh, so there, there was sort of always room to add one more to the list. Um, and each god had his or her own sort of corner of influence in the world. But when the god of the Bible revealed himself to the people of Israel, he didn't say, just add me to your list. He said, no, I'm the only one. 
I'm at the top of the list. And by the way, all the other gods, they aren't even real. I'm not just a god in one little corner of the universe. I'm the one who made the whole thing and holds the whole thing together. You see, uh, one way to put it is God wasn't looking for an open relationship between him and the Israelites. Right? Some people are looking for an open romantic relationship that doesn't involve any serious commitment. The God of the Bible is not that kind of God. God wants a relationship of exclusive loyalty between him and his people. And so that's why the Bible compares God's relationship with the people of Israel in the Old Testament or the Christian church in the New Testament uh, to a marriage uh, between a husband and wife who promise themselves to one another as God has promised himself to his people. Uh, so God wants us to say to him, there's no one else like you, Lord. And of course, this took time for the people of Israel to get to know God, get to know who God was. It didn't happen all at once. Um, and, you know, if you're just sort of starting out looking into the Bible, you might have a lot of questions. Like, okay, what is this God? Who is this God all about? How do I, what, you know, what does he want? What does he like? Those are all good questions to be asking. Right? And as we walk through the Bible, my hope is that you'll see more of who this God is. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, that you might be able to uh, sing about him like the Israelites do here. So that's the first thing we see in the song, is who the Lord is. The second thing we see in the song is sort of looking back on what God has done. So this is uh, verses 1 to 12, focus on what the Lord has done in the past. And they focus on <clears throat> what God did for his people, his, <clears throat> excuse me, Israel, in defeating their enemies at the Red Sea. So last week we read the story, which is found in chapter 14, uh, as a brief recap Basically, the people of Israel had been enslaved and oppressed in Egypt for many decades. And uh, finally, God had intervened and set them free. And so they had left Egypt, they were journeying through the wilderness, and then the Egyptian army decides, we're going to chase after them and recapture them and drag them back and make them be our slaves again. And uh, verse 9 describes uh, the, the attitude of the Egyptian army. And he said, I'll pursue, I'll overtake I'll divide this spoil, my desire shall have its fill with it. Um, sort of see a picture of Pharaoh's arrogant boasting and ravenous greed, that he just wants whatever he can get from the Israelites. Did I run out of battery? I guess. All right. So, I'm going to get this one. All right. Um, Okay, so verses 1 to 12 celebrate how God defeated Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. Now, if you read these verses, if you just heard these verses for the first time, sort of in isolation from the rest of the story, you might feel like the Israelites are being vindictive and sort of gloating over their enemy's demise. But you have to think about it in light of what the Israelites had been through. They had been ruthlessly beaten, enslaved, oppressed, mistreated for generations. And they had finally been set free, and then Pharaoh and his army wants to come and drag them back into that again. And so when God dealt with Pharaoh and his army and decisively defeated them, once and for all, the people were relieved. They're like, we're finally free. And they're not even, they're not, they can't chase after us anymore. So that's why they sing here. It's a victory song that they're singing. Uh, now, you can find victory songs in a lot of places, not just in the Bible. 
nice scholars have found two victory songs from ancient Egypt in the 13th century BC, very close to the time when this all happened. And just like here, there's a story of a battle followed by a song uh, celebrating the victory. But here's the important difference. The other ancient stories and songs about great battles won by armies always glorified the leaders of the army, or in the Egyptians' case, the pharaoh, who sort of led and represented his people as the heroes of the story. And that's how most victory songs, ancient and modern, go. Uh, they glorify the winners. Uh, so I grew up playing ice hockey. I played for my town team, and a couple of times my team made it to the league championship. Not most years, uh, but a couple of times we did. And before the game, in the locker room, someone would bring a boombox and would blast, we will, we will rock you. Right? Everybody knows that we are the best. We're going to put you through the test, etc., etc. And once we actually won the championship, and then we played, we are the champions, my friend. We'll keep on fighting till the end. No time for losers, because we are the champions of the world. That's how most victory songs go. Right? They're all about self-glorification. They glorify the winners. We won because we're the best. But the victory songs in the Bible never say that. In all the victory songs in the Bible, there's only one hero. And it's God. So God is the one whose victory is celebrated here. In fact, you can read this whole song, and Moses and Aaron, the human leaders of Israel, are not even mentioned by name. They're not even referred to. Because the song isn't about praising the human leaders of God's people, it's about praising God. Now, last week we read the story of how the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, Right? Maybe you saw one of those movies that sort of depicts it one form or another, Prince of Egypt, or the Ten Commandments that, you know, Moses lead them across the sea. Moses played an important role. Right? The last chapter talks about that. Uh, the Israelites were afraid. They saw the Egyptians approaching, and Moses stands up and gives them a courageous speech. Take courage, stand firm, trust the Lord, don't fear. And Moses leads them. He, you know, raises his staff raises his hand and, and stretches out his staff across the sea, and the waters part. Uh, the end of the chapter says the Israelites believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So God uses people to accomplish his purposes, in this case Moses. But the song emphasizes that no matter what God uses or who God uses to provide deliverance, it's God who deserves the credit. It's God who should get the glory. So verse 14 talks about how God drove the sea back by an east wind. Chapter 15 doesn't refer to an east wind at all, because it wasn't a lucky weather pattern that saved the Israelites. It was God there being on their behalf. Uh, verse 8 and 10 uh, talk about uh, your wind, the blast of your nostrils. And it wasn't ultimately Moses' hand that parted the seas, it was God's hand. Uh, as verse 6 and verse 12 say. So what do we learn from this second point? that the people praise God for what he's done in the past. Well, we learn that we're meant to praise God and not praise ourselves, right? To praise, when, when we gather together, as Christians, if, if Christians gather together as followers of Jesus, we're not here to toot our own horn. We're not here to say how great we are, you know, and how moral we are, and how much we've accomplished. We're here to say God is good and God is great and he's done so many great things for us. Um, and the greatest victory that God has accomplished for us is what he accomplished when he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. You see, 
The New Testament says that Jesus Christ came to fight and win a battle on our behalf, that we could never fight on our own. Uh, that Jesus was faithful and obedient to God throughout his whole life, even to the point of death, even when he was nailed to a cross, by even when he was treated cruelly and horribly. He was faithful and obedient to God. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and defeated death on our behalf. So the Apostle Paul in the New Testament wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Right? That's the victory that we celebrate. That's the reason to sing. You know, if that's true, that's the reason to sing. Uh, so we can praise God for who he is, we can praise God for what he's done, and finally... Uh, the last part of the song is about what God will do in the future. This is verse 13 through 21. Uh, so the first half of the song looks back on the past. The second half of the song looks forward to the future. And in fact, this song comes at a crucial turning point in this book. Uh, the first half of the song looks back on everything, all the story that's come up to this point, the first 14 chapters of the story, and the rest of the song looks forward to what God's going to do in the rest of the book. And even beyond that. Uh, so if you look at verse 13, now uh, verse 13 talks about not just how God defeated people's enemies, but how he faithfully led uh, his people in his love, with his steadfast love, and how he has promised to guide them, uh, and it says, to your holy abode, which means a resting place. You see, throughout the whole book of Exodus, God is leading the people of Israel on a journey toward his presence, where they can uh, rest with him, where they can dwell with him and be in his presence forever. Um, and so if you have come to know and trust the God who the Bible speaks about, that's what your life on earth is. It's a journey out of bondage to sin and death and into and toward the presence of God and being with him for the rest of your life and forever. Um, you see, here's, here, the Bible says that the same God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and rise from the dead so that we could have eternal life, he's promised to lead and guide us, just as verse 13 talks about, through every step of the path uh, and everything that we will face in our lives. Uh, verses 14 through 16, uh, God reassures the people that just as God delivered them from their enemies in the past, he'll deliver them from their enemies in the future. Verse 17 says, you'll bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain. In other words, nothing and nobody can stop God from completing the good purposes that he has begun in the lives of his people. So that's what this song celebrates. The song celebrates that God has been faithful in the past and that he's going to be faithful in the future. And this is a message and a song that wasn't just sung one time. It was passed down through the generations. Uh, in fact, uh, in many times of history, the Jewish people have sung this song even every day or every Sabbath day when they gathered to worship. Uh, and also, a lot of other songs in the Bible, if you read other songs in the Bible, many of them echo this song. Uh, so Psalm 18, Psalm 118, Isaiah 12, and Revelation 15, those, all, those chapters all have songs that echo the words of this song. So this song, the first and oldest song in the Bible, sort of gets echoed down through the generations. Uh, when, uh, because God is faithful. 
So let me close um, with some practical thoughts about how should this song shape our, our lives and also how we sing uh, when we gather as a church. Um, so a couple of just practical thoughts at the end. First, when we gather together, we, the reason we sing is to glorify God and not ourselves. Right? We're not here in order to put on a great concert every Sunday morning. Now, you could do that. You could pay lots of money. You could re recruit the best musicians and singers around. You could pay a big choir and be nice and traditional. You could pay a good rock band and go all modern, right? You could go lots of different styles. There's nothing inherently wrong with a choir or a band, but we're not here to put on a performance. The reason why we sing is because we're here as God's people who have been rescued by him like the Israelites were. And we sing to him out of gratitude for what he's done for us. We're here to declare that message to the world, to anybody who's willing to listen. We're here to remind each other of God is, that God is faithful and God is merciful. And part of the way that we do that every week is by singing together. Um, not just by hiring somebody else to sing for us. Right? Now, some of you might say, I'm not really used to this singing church. I, if I, you know, either, maybe you didn't grow up in a church, maybe you grew up in a church where other people did the singing, right? It was just people up front who did the singing. Uh, but notice who did the singing here. It wasn't just Moses and Miriam. It was all the people who had experienced God's saving grace. Uh, so if you've experienced God's saving grace, the invitation is to join in the song of praise to God's glory. Now, I know that many people are hesitant to sing in church for a wide variety of reasons. So let me try to address a couple of those common reasons uh, why people might feel hesitant. Maybe why you feel hesitant to sing in church. So some people feel like, I'm not a good singer, and I don't sing in front of other people. Because I'll feel embarrassed if I do. Well, let me ask you this question. Uh, if you have children, or grandchildren, or nieces, or nephews, have you ever had them sing happy birthday to you? And if they sang off key, did you criticize them for it? Of course not. No, because they were expressing their love to you in the best way they can. You see, when God looks at us, when God looks at his children, that he is saved by his grace, he's not looking at us and sort of criticizing our musical flaws. He sees a lot of flaws in us. Right? We don't quite sing exactly right. That's the least of our problems. God graciously received our praise despite our many imperfections. The other thing is, you'll never learn to sing better by remaining completely silent. You'll only learn to sing better little by little as you give it a try. Now, another concern that you might feel, uh, singing out loud just feels strange. I get it. In fact, a lot of things that we do here in the church might feel strange for a few reasons. I mean, first, we're singing songs to somebody who we don't see with our physical eyes. Many people would think, that's a little strange, right? We don't really do that anywhere else in the world, sing songs to somebody we can't see. Uh, second, we're singing songs out loud with each other. And that's becoming less and less common in our society, right? People listen to a lot of recorded music. But we don't sing out loud together as much as many people did in past generations. So you're right. 
what we're doing here might feel a little strange. Uh, and in fact, uh, many of the normal things that Christians have done for generations will probably feel a little more strange uh, in our sort of post-Christian world. Uh, but here's the thing, even if it feels a little strange, I think there can also be something deeply attractive about a group of Christians who aren't necessarily professional singers, but coming together to sing praise honestly and authentically to God. Right? I know many people who have been deeply moved by a song they heard at church, even if they weren't singing themselves, even if they've never heard that song before, as something in the words resonated with them. Um, right? In some ways, the songs we sing sort of tell the story that we believe in. It's true of a lot of the songs that we sing. Uh, and I might say, well, I'd like to sing, but I don't know any of these songs. They, these are all new to me. So if that's true, keep on coming, because if you come here even for a month or two, you'll hear some songs repeated more than once. Uh, so we do this on purpose to try to help uh, one another learn songs and sort of get to know them better as a congregation. Now we also intentionally mix in new songs, so it doesn't feel right we're always saying only the same two songs over and over again. Um, but if you don't feel like you don't know the songs, just keep coming. Uh, we also have a Spotify playlist, which you can access, uh, let's see, I have sent it out in an email, and I, there might be a link on our website, you can get a link on our website to that one, um, that uh, just has several of the songs we commonly sing here. Uh, now, there are two reasons that you might have for not seeing uh, that I just also want to honor. So some of you might say, you know, I don't really feel comfortable singing these songs because when I read the words, I really just don't believe that yet. You know, I'm willing to listen, but that doesn't really reflect what I've come to believe. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm open, but I can't sing them there yet. And if that's you, that's fine. Don't feel any pressure to sing something that you feel like you can't sing authentically, or that you don't yet believe. Just sort of take it as an opportunity to listen, and consider what it says, and consider if that song might speak to you, might resonate with you something in it. Uh, the second thing uh, that I want to honor is you might say, you know, I believe these things, but I'm completely exhausted. Maybe you're physically exhausted, or maybe you feel spiritually exhausted. Maybe you just feel like singing feels like a burden. You know, maybe you're grieving or just going through a really hard time in life. And in that case, let me just encourage you, just listen. And listen to your brothers and sisters in Christ who are singing around you. And let their praises and their prayers carry you along. And receive that as a gift of God's grace. Okay, so don't feel pressure if you're exhausted. Uh, feel like, oh no, I have to sing. Um, let me close with a story. About a year and a half ago, I learned that my grandmother was dying. She was my last living grandparent. She was 93 years old. She had lived a long and faithful and fruitful life. For some years, her health and her memory had gradually declined, so it wasn't a surprise. Um, so I drove, but I, when I learned about this, I drove to Massachusetts, visit her, well, what was the last time? Because of how much memory she had lost, and because of how physically weak she was, I knew that it would be difficult, if not impossible, to carry on an extended conversation with her. She would ask me the same questions five or ten or as many times as I would let her. Do you have any children? What's your wife's name? She wouldn't remember any of my answers. 
and she might just fall asleep. She might feel frustrated, sort of knowing that she couldn't really follow a train of thought. So I tried something different. I had a short conversation with her, but instead of trying to have push the conversation further along, I brought along a hymnal. And I sang to her a cappella in the hospital room. One hymn after another, all the hymns that I could remember from the church that we had grown up in, where she had been a pastor's wife for many years. My grandmother couldn't carry on a conversation anymore, but she still knew those hymns by heart. And even though she didn't have a lot of strength to speak, she still mouthed those words along with me. Almost every hymn I sing. If you are familiar with some of the older Christian hymns, a lot of them, like we sang Because He Lives, that last verse talks about the hope of heaven. Crossing over the Jordan River, coming into the presence of Jesus, being with Him in glory forever. You know, when you're on your deathbed, there are a lot of songs that you might have heard throughout your life that will seem shallow and trivial and foolish and meaningless. But the songs about what this song talks about, about who God is and what he's done in the past and what he promises to do in the future, those songs will hit the spot. You see, if you meditate on songs like these and if you will take them to heart and let them sink into your soul, and if you sing them while you have the physical and spiritual strength to do so, they will stick with you. And even if you get to the point where you can't remember what you said 30 seconds ago, even if you don't have the physical strength to carry on a conversation, those songs and the truths within them will continue to resonate in your soul. Sing them all the way to the end, and you will keep on singing in the presence of Jesus forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for the gift of music. Thank you that we have a reason to sing. Thank you for how you've been faithful in the past. Thank you for how you promised to be faithful in the future. We pray that you would work in our hearts and minds. And Lord, help us. Help us to sing, to give praise to you. Despite our many imperfections and flaws, that we would bring glory to you somehow by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.